Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And we are here with episode 21. We have gotten over the um, the temporary hump of less than stellar or <laughs> terrifyingly vague movies. <laughs> and we're back to something that we both like. We are covering It Follows from 2014. As we mentioned at the end of the last episode, I have only seen this one once when we actually, I think we saw it together in the theater, but it would have been, I think, so technically the movie came out in 2014. I think it hit theaters in 2015. I can't remember, but I think we might have seen it together because they had a small showing at the Neon. Yeah, that sounds right. So I think we saw it together, but afterwards I was like so shook by this movie that I could not possibly watch it again so i have not seen it again until tonight eight years later or seven years later however long it's been what I don't is know. time even <laughs> what is time even post pandemic like psh, time is in wobbly waves so yeah. who knows but yeah i was really excited to take another look at this one especially in the context of the podcast because i wanted to think critically about it especially because like i said the first time I had mad brain scramblies afterwards. <laughs> I exited the theater and I was like, what if any of these people walking towards me? Well, it was bad. I mean, it's terrifying. <laughs> it is. Yes. So just tiny brief summary of this movie. A young woman named Jay has sex with a guy and chaos ensues. <laughs> <laughs> a perfect. Uh, perfect basically, yes. Is <laughs> <laughs> a perfect. Um place to put that but basically she has sex with a guy who she thinks is her boyfriend and he introduces her to this supernatural entity that is now going to follow her forever forever until it kills her until it kills her or until she sleeps with another person to pass it along as he did to her and really even the passing along is a little vague Mm -hmm. i think that's what he believes Right. Whether yep. that's actually true or not is debatable. And we can yep. talk more about that here in a little bit because I have thoughts. <laughs> yes. Yes. The lore is something that I definitely wanted to talk about for this movie because at least when we start out, we're in the fall, we're in the autumn, in the Midwest, there's leaves falling everywhere, very crunchy, very like, you know, I want to be there because summer in the Midwest is sort of a crapshoot. You have like your upper 70s days where you're like, yeah, this is great. And then you have like your 100 days and you're like, what? Why do I live in a place that makes my body and face hurt and burn? Let's just talk for a second about the fact, the seasons thing. Like, oh, yeah, we yeah, can yeah, just yeah. jump right into critical, yeah, critical yeah. response Let's because I have read, and it's part of the IMDb trivia, and I actually read an article about this. I was looking up just some writing about it ahead of this rewatch. And, like, a ton of people point out the season thing. Mm -hmm. And as a Midwesterner, like, Detroit area, like, yeah, we're, we're much farther south than Detroit, but we're in that general, you know, vertical space, at least in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And the weather's not that different. Yeah. I didn't find the season thing weird at all. 
Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Like it. It's a kind of a running joke here in Ohio. Like it's not even like that much of a joke that it can literally be chilly, rainy, sunny, humid, and snowing like within the same three days. Oh, yeah. And that's normal. Yeah. There's a saying like if you don't like the weather, then just wait 10 minutes. Yeah. Because it will be totally different. That certainly is the case here in Ohio, and Michigan is not that much different. They definitely have a colder winter season, yeah, on average anyways, but we still get like the same storm fronts pass through here, you know, and especially around the Detroit area, they're not dealing with like intense lake effect, not like Erie, Pennsylvania or anything. Right. In any case, it did not strike me as odd at all, the season thing. Because we have that lived experience where it's like, we see this all the time. (laughs) This part of the Midwest is just weird. So... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, uh, not too long ago, like last month or the month before, we went from like 100 degrees to like mid-70s overnight. So... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then we went back up into the 90s, like two days later, so... Well, especially this time of year, like, we're recording this in, you know, late-ish August and around here, like... We're already to the point. It's it's actually a little a little unusual that it's not as hot. But you know, like this summer, it's like it's kind of chilly in the mornings already, and still like just hot as all get out during the day. <laughs> so yeah, the the temperature fluctuation thing did not strike me as weird or like as intentionally weird. You no. know, I don't know a ton about this director, but I assume that he grew up in the Midwest or in our part of the Midwest. Yeah. So I think that might just be one of those things that for people that are not used to the way we experience seasons, it seems weird. But it's like, no, it's just this place is strange. Yeah. Yeah. We just live in a weird weather vortex where we also like we live kind of southeast of like a major highway intersection. And that's always a weird thing, too, because the weather patterns change over the highways because of the warm weather so or because of the warmth coming from the highway road it like interrupts those weather patterns Mm -hmm. so north of us can get like extreme snow and then it turns to rain and then it'll turn to like extreme rain once you get closer to cincinnati it's very strange we live in a weird weather vortex yeah we do Um, we literally had tornadoes yesterday yeah exactly what the heck it's a good thing that I turned on my my weather alerts, my like tornado warning siren, because I was napping when that happened. Oh, no. <laughs> so it was like, blah, blah, on my phone. And I was like, oh, my God. And my partner's phone went off, too. And he was like, what is that? And I was like, oh, I turned it on past Teresa, made sure that we had See? our audible tornado alerts. That's smart. <laughs> because of uh, several years ago. So I was at my parents' house. We were sitting on their patio and literally we were like, okay, I guess we need to go in the house. And my dad's like, I got to go out in the yard and bring some of these plants in. (laughs) He had to save his plants. He had to save his plants. I thought you were going to say that he did the Midwestern dad thing where he like stood out in the yard and he's like, oh, yeah, that's going to be a big one. No, he just had to save the plants. He's like, I don't want him to get all battered. Let me drag them into the patio really fast Juliet's like there's dad, an actual tornado warning he's a great plant dad yes, he's he a really is. good plant dad he is he, his daughter is sitting on the patio she can fend for herself these plants though they can't get battered the plants <laughs> can't fend for themselves yes yeah he knows that you would do yeah. what you needed to do yeah but i get it covered yeah where i was going with the autumn thing is 
that it gives you a very John Carpenter feel. Totally. Because John yes. Carpenter loves a fall movie. He does <laughs> love a fall movie. Now, Midwestern fall. There is certainly an aesthetic that is very desirable from a Midwestern fall. Yes. Mostly because the weather is actually bearable when you go outside versus like in the summer where it's terrible or in the winter where it's very cold. So it looks nice. You can hang out outside. It's not too chilly. You can drink a warm coffee and be like right at the correct temperature. Spend lots of time out there. There's no bugs, which is great. Which is excellent. (laughs) Yes. So that's good. So like Midwestern fall aesthetic is great. It's pleasing. It makes you feel warm cozies. I'm sure you've seen tons of memes and stuff about like, I'm so ready for pumpkin weather, you know, whatever, which we don't shame people who love pumpkin weather because we ourselves, we are those people and people like can like what they like. So whatever. But John Carpenter loves a fall movie and you like this movie just bleeds John Carpenter. Yeah, honestly, like definitely it is. So it's not quite as bloody as a John Carpenter film. But you can see all of the homages to John Carpenter and that it's really a kind of a love letter to totally. him. I mean, from the very beginning of the movie, it even starts out like Halloween. Yeah. Like that was one of the first things I wrote down was like, wow, the slow shots, the slow pans, the slow zoom, the like long shots down a tree lined road, mm-hmm. you know. Those things are all reminiscent of John Carpenter films, at least of Halloween and his first Halloween movie. I don't know. I just think it's like a love letter to John Carpenter. Yeah. And that very intentional placement of like, we're going to really establish where you are as this like warm, fuzzy, and yet very, very typical Mm -hmm. American community. Like even if you don't consciously know like you and I do, Mm -hmm. like where you are in the Midwest in these movies, like in both Carpenter's movies in Halloween and in this, it's kind of just like if you think of like the typical American Midwest, this is probably the image that you're going to conjure up like suburbs kind of a thing. And what I love that John Carpenter does in Halloween and this movie does too is it sets it up as so typical and so like mundane that it gets you lulled into a false sense of security for some really, really weird shit to go down. Yeah. And I love that because the suburb that I grew up in and I'm sure the suburb that you grew up in look very, very close. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're under the assumption, especially now being older and being able to look back like those places are very safe Mm -hmm. and like very um, typical, very vanilla, not really much strange strangeness goes down it's just it's the safe place it's the place that you retreat to when you want to feel secure Mm -hmm. and this movie tears that away yeah there is no security it doesn't matter your locks on your doors it doesn't matter how far you drive away it absolutely roasts any sense of security that you have and that is something i think at its core, although the movie tackles some bigger issues in terms of like sexuality and promiscuity and and choice and things like that, I think the thing that makes it the most scary is that you're never safe, even mm-hmm. in the safest place that you can think of, even in your own home or your vacation home or with all the doors and windows locked, with your chair propped under the door handle, you're not safe. And no matter where you go or how far you go or how fast you go... The not safe, the unsafe will catch up with you eventually. Yeah. It doesn't matter where. I wonder if it would still follow you into space. I don't know. The director has said in interviews that it would definitely board a plane. 
to follow you. That makes sense. So the first time I watched this, like I said, I was super, super scared. So I wasn't thinking very clearly about some of the mechanics of it. And I had a chance to actually do that this time. Think about some of the lore, some of how it works. The entity, though, is corporeal. So theoretically, it could get on a bus. It could get in a car. Absolutely, Yeah. So the first time I watched it, I was thinking, and I don't know why I was like so, I know why, I, I know why. I did it, but because it's terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> I was so I was like so obsessed. I wanted so badly to come up with a rule for this thing, mm-hmm. like okay, well, all you got to do is drive six hours, and then you'll have at least you know f- you'll have at least ten hours because how long will it take for it to walk to catch up those six hours? It's like no, because this thing is corporeal. It's invisible, but it does bend space so it and it can use items as tools like the rock that it uses to bust in greg's window jay's window too so it can be conveyed it could board a plane it could get on a bus so you never have any sense of security because it could find a means to get to you in any number of ways that have nothing to do with like a standard length of time that you would be safe yeah, and we always see it in the film walking, mm-hmm. but I love the deliberateness on the part of the writer and director, um, David Robert Mitchell, who said, you know, he conceived of this idea from a dream mm-hmm. he had, which is like a terrifying dream, and I completely agree with him. Jeez. Um, he's very intentional with time. Where sometimes you're sitting there thinking, well, surely it must be there and it doesn't show up and other times you're like surely jay must have gotten far enough from it fast enough that it's not going to be here and it's there yeah and you don't know you only see it when it's close enough to be perceived as walking but you don't know right if did it teleport did it get on a bus did, yeah like how does that work and the not knowing makes it all the scarier in totally. my opinion yeah and the fake boyfriend um hugh slash jeff yeah hugh slash jeff he tells her it's very slow but it's not dumb and i was like okay well when it's walking it's not slow it's such an underestimation on his part to be like oh it's very slow yeah it's like okay well how does he know that it's slow like he is aware he perceives that when it's walking towards him it's slow but it's also one of those things like the inevitable slow march of time, you mm-hmm. know, where it doesn't matter how fast or slow you perceive a thing to happen, it's going to happen no matter. And that's one of the things that her friend Yara is talking about the entire time, which I'll talk about Yara later because I love her. <laughs> um, but yeah, like their perception of how this creature works is so rudimentary. They have yeah. no idea. And the Hugh slash Jeff dude is just making assumptions about it. Anyways, I have more to say about Hugh slash Jeff as well. But I should also mention a couple of the actors, I guess. So Jay Height is the main character, played by Micah Monroe. Then we have Paul, who's played by Kier Gilchrist. You've seen him in some other stuff, too. Like, uh, he was in Dead Silence. Oh, Okay. And then we have Yara, played by Olivia Lucardi. We have Kelly, who is Jay's little sister, uh, by Lily Seppe. And then we have Annie, 
played by Bailey Spry. And then Jake Weary plays Hugh slash Jeff. And Daniel Zavato plays Greg, the across the street neighbor guy. And that's basically your main cast of characters. I would almost argue that Greg is like kind of a secondary character anyways. He's more of a means to an end. But mm-hmm. so one of the very first things that you mentioned while we were watching the movie is that you love the music. Tell me why you love the music. I love the music. It was uh, composed by Disasterpiece, who up to that point had really only done video game scores, but this, I believe, was his first film score, and he's done a lot of scoring for films since then. Mm-hmm. Again, it's such a beautiful nod to John Carpenter, to Goblin, to kind of all of our iconic film scores from, like, I would say the late 70s into the 80s. It fits beautifully, and it's the type of uh, score that works so beautifully as a score, but also could be listened to as music on its own, which I love. I love it when a score can exist as a piece of music that both enhances the action of the film, but can also have a life beyond the film. Mm -hmm. And this absolutely does. I play some of this score on my ambient radio show and it fits beautifully alongside you know all of your like chill ambient new age artists yeah it definitely has a john carpenter vibe maybe not as scary because i think john carpenter has an unease yeah more ethereal i would say yeah and this is more um listenable i think yeah is a good phrase for it have you ever seen drive with yeah. Ryan Gosling. Okay. Not a horror movie, but this soundtrack, this score reminds me of the soundtrack that they did for Drive. I could see that, yeah. And that sort of like kind of um trippy, dreamy mm-hmm. techno, but not really like techno as in club techno, but like techno as in like chill, lo-fi. Yeah, like chill wavy, mm-hmm. trip hoppy kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. It it definitely puts me in that dream mindset. And yeah. it's the same thing with Drive. The way that it's shot is very dreamy. Some of the color filters that are used are very, uh, like, and I I understand that that was likely on purpose because this came from a dream. This idea came from a dream. So he wanted it to be purposefully, like, dreamy. But, yeah, the music definitely puts you in that, like, dream mode. So I really love that. I didn't know if you noticed, but the theater that they're in, I'm sure that you saw on the IMDb trivia, the theater that they're in is the theater at the beginning of the movie in Detroit is the theater that the Evil Dead was premiered yeah. at, which is super cool. Yes. I've never been to the theater, although I know that they are doing an Evil Dead anniversary release there with oh, Bruce Campbell, cool. I think, uh, later next month. But I have too many things, too many trips. I know. Yeah. <laughs> But one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that on the marquee of the theater, they were showing that they were playing Charade with Audrey Hepburn, which is a movie about several men following Audrey Hepburn because she, her husband apparently had absconded with some cash and uh, these men are following her. So I thought that that was kind of a cool, like backwards nod to some classic cinema because... Although we can tell that he loves John Carpenter. Looks like he loves a uh, Hitchcockian type yeah. cinema as well. And I think early Sofia Coppola because I see a ton of virgin suicides in this movie. See, I've never seen virgin suicides. I love virgin suicides so much. I've read the book, but I have never seen the movie 
it was just a teeny tiny bit too old for me when it like when that it makes, came out. Yeah. I should go back and watch it, you but should. I just haven't yet. Yeah. There's too much media to consume. That's fair. I rewatched it fairly recently and I love it all the same. I've been going on this kick like rewatching movies that I loved in college and being like <laughs> Do they still make me feel good? Or am I like, oh, God, what was I thinking? Or, oh, God, this is, like, super problematic now. But Did you rewatch Garden State? And you're like, uh, oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh. I haven't seen Garden State in a really long time, so I, could, I don't know. Oh, I could do a whole <laughs> I could do oh a God. whole thing about Garden State. Well, now Zach Braff has a sour, gives me a sour taste in my mouth because apparently he broke up with Florence Pugh because he was threatened by her success. Ew. Yeah. That's all gossip, guys. I don't know. Ew. It could be whatever. But Florence Pugh is a scream queen that I definitely want to see in more horror, which I'm very excited about. Don't worry, darling. Oh, my gosh. Me too. Every time I see another trailer for it, I'm just like, I am so stoked because, one, I love Florence Pugh. And I have very, like, hardcore am about her right now. Number two, Olivia Wilde. Oh, I, yes. <laughs> she she is great. And the first movie that she directed, Booksmart, made me almost pee my pants laughing. Yeah. Anyways, those aren't horror movies. But we're... <laughs> I mean, I guess don't worry, darling. I think it's going to be sci-fi horror. It's going to be like a... It looks like a psychological thriller, but I'm... I think it's going to push that boundary. Uh, yeah. I have theories about it. I want to see Chris Pine as bad guy. Yeah, I'm I excited know. about that. And Harry Styles, little Harry Styles. I know. <laughs> Except for the whole like Olivia Wilde, Harry Styles, like oh yeah, and you know, like her marriage is over. Oh all yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> we watch way too many movies. Yeah, we do. Another thing that I really enjoy about this movie, and I think some and not another nod back to John Carpenter is the very intentional, like, slow centered shots, like, very yeah. slow zoom. And the slow pan, like, where where it's, like, very, very slowly rotating in a semicircle. Or a complete circle in yeah. the case of the school, it, which was so, awesome. Yeah, the school and in the beginning of the movie where we see the young woman run from her house in uh-huh. heels. And then it goes all the way around, and then it goes back back in the other direction which i thought was really cool it's kind of like breaking its own rules yeah because typically when you see that the director wants it very very homogenous uh-huh. wants the shot to be timed very well and needs to be all you know it goes the exact same amount of distance in the same amount of time all the way around and it's not going to go backwards so when they stop and then go backwards in the other direction i thought wow, that's really cool because it's an asymmetry to Mm -hmm. what most of the time is like supposed to be a very fixed way of shooting. Those slow pan shots make you hyper aware of what is entering and exiting in the frame on both sides. So it gives you chills. Like it makes you feel very uneasy. What new fresh hell am I about to slowly turn into, you know, the direction on this movie is absolutely fantastic. I love it. I also love the lighting in general. Like, mm-hmm. it's beautifully lit. Like, a lot of really high-key, rich color saturation. And I don't know if it's just the director and the cinematographer's particular style or if it's a product of being a little earlier. Like, you know, 2014, it's, you know gonna be 10 years old very soon you know it's Ugh. it's getting up there i know which ew. 
ew time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could have so easily fallen into the trap that a lot of movies are falling into right now. A movie we just saw this weekend, even though it was really good, kind of fell into this trap of being too dark. Mm-hmm. And it didn't just, oh my God, it was so beautiful. Like there's so much that happens in darkness and at night in this film. And yet there's so much rich color within the darkness. Mm -hmm. I just, I love that. I loved it when I first saw it because it is so visually pleasing. And I love it even more now with this trend of movies where you just literally can't see what's happening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I appreciate it all the more watching it now. I always appreciate a movie where even in the dark, we can see what's happening because it's not always about what's in the dark that's scary. Right. And there is a very iconic scene, like, all the time I see it on top 10 lists, like, most scary scene in a movie ever, which is, I'm going to spoil it, which obviously we do that, the scene where the very tall entity enters Jay's room uh-huh. from outside in the in the hallway. When I saw that the first time, it scared the pants off of me. Yeah. When yeah. I saw it the second time, I know the jumps, so it's not going to be as impactful this time, but... The scary part is it coming into the light. Yeah. But all of the attacks happen in the daylight. Like when Jay's attacked on the beach, that happens in the daylight. Yep. When the young woman at the very beginning of the movie is attacked on the shore of the lake, it happens within the headlights of her vehicle. So we are existing in the dark. We're existing at night. The movie does not shy away from making sure that those scenes are lit so you see exactly everything that you're supposed to see. Yeah. There's nothing, like, hidden. Well, I mean, outside of it being the entity, you know, the nature of the entity. But that's because it's invisible, not because it's dark. Yeah. So I love that. I agree with you. I think that's a tough thing to pull off is to make a movie scary when it's not all in darkness. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely a trend right now for everything to be super dark. And it's like, like in the theater, can we turn up the brightness? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little bit. Like, <laughs> kind of makes you want to watch the movie again at home where you can, like, adjust the brightness. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, for a hot second, the movie I'm thinking about super specifically that we just saw, because a lot of that was happening at the very beginning of the movie, I was like, do they need to change the projector bulb? <laughs> and I think it was just the way the movie was shot, but I do want to watch it at home yeah. just to see. But I don't think so. I think it was just the way that the opening was shot. Yeah. It felt like it was so dark. It's a dull kind of darkness that a mm-hmm. lot of people are going for, a very um, very flat darkness, I would say, mm-hmm. rather than like a high key where you're like, this is like hard to explain in words. like if i had visual aids um but you're like you're lighting the darkness if you light the darkness very high key Mm -hmm. you can still get a shape a sense of shape and dimension and things like that but when like darkness isn't lit well for the Mm -hmm. sake of filming it just feels flat and almost fuzzy and you can't you can't distinguish shape yeah which i think is the kind of the whole point of doing something in the dark right film you need to be able to see the shapes and when you're showing it on a digital screen too Oh, yeah. With the digital projector, it makes it even worse. Yep. So if you're filming something in that way where you're talking about, like, the flat darkness, if you were filming on 35 millimeter, that would work. Yeah. But now with digital projection or an IMAX movie even, you really need to have some sort of dimension to make it look clear. Yeah. Because otherwise it's going to look fuzzy, like bad fuzzy. Yeah. So I agree with you. 
use that definition. Like, why do we have digital projectors if we're only going to shoot like we used to? Right. Not that there's anything wrong with 35 millimeter. I absolutely love 35 Oh, I love 35 millimeter. Yeah. But when we're using digital cameras, like, let's use them. Yeah. Let's use all of the techniques and tools that we have available to us. People have fought. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) No, like, I agree with you, though. The definition and the depth of a darkness really, really adds to it. So absolutely agree with you. Okay, so interesting observation. This movie does not have a final girl. Yeah, it doesn't. We have a final duo, potentially. Potentially. Our final girl is still here because of the help of her friends. Her sister and her two friends, Paul and Yara, they help her. Yeah. Like, without that motley group of friends. And I guess you could say Greg, kind of. Greg contributes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. He does contribute. Yes, he does. He adds by subtracting at certain points. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But yeah, without the help of her friends, like, it wouldn't have... She wouldn't be where she is. She would not still exist or at least even have a plan of attack for the future. But one of the things I noticed this time is how sad Jay is. Yeah. Like, I don't think I understand. I don't think I noticed as much the first time because I was, like, too busy being really scared. But Jay, after the Hugh Jeff thing, because the cops make it very clear she wasn't raped. Right. She had consensual sex with Hugh slash Jeff. However, afterwards, he chloroforms her and then ties her up, kidnaps her, basically, while she's pretty much naked, and then drops her off at her home with her hands still bound. And so she's traumatized, and he's filled her head with all of these, you know, insane ideas about this thing following her, and she's been traumatized by this vision of a woman, you know, walking towards her naked, which... I don't know for sure, but I think chloroform can cause hallucinations. So yeah, at a certain point, I mean, if you're using Occam's razor, she's probably like, I just went through a traumatic experience. I got chloroformed by somebody I thought was my boyfriend. Um, Maybe I just was tripping. Or maybe he hired somebody to scare yeah. me as like a terrible joke. I don't know. But... She afterwards is like, of course, scared, but she's also extremely sad. And I think maybe that's where the virgin suicide things, Sofia Coppola, yeah, feel comes in because it feels like Jay is like depressed, doesn't have like much to look forward to, if that makes sense, like willing to self harm potentially. There's the scene where she's having sex with uh, Greg in her hospital bed and her head just kind of like falls to the side. And at first you think, oh, she's being hypervigilant because like what if the entity comes in? But she's just tuned out. Yeah. Like she doesn't care. The other thing about it is her friends, like while they do help her, they follow her lead almost to a fault Mm -hmm. in that... The friends are not, they're not the type of groups of friends that we see like in other, you know, movies about young folks or even other horror films where the friends sort of rally around the person and they're like, 
let's get you out of here. Let's go do something. It's like, if Jay, if all she wants to do is kind of lie around and be in her head, that's what Kelly and Yara and Paul are going to do too, almost in solidarity. (laughs) Yeah. And I think some of that is like solidarity and some of that is a comment on their lives in the place that they're in, Mm -hmm. uh, which we can kind of circle back to in a minute. But everyone is very, very stuck in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Like even without this circumstance of Jay being followed by this entity, they all just seem kind of stuck. Yeah. Like they're just spinning their wheels. Yeah. They don't really have any forward momentum. So Jay's trying to get away from this thing, but she's surrounded by people who are like her kind of in limbo almost, like in a purgatory state where it's like, okay, we're out of high school. What's the next step? Don't know. Smoking cigarettes and going to get ICs, I guess. It's interesting because they're Mm adults-ish. The question of like, oh, should we call the cops? Should we tell our mom? Mm -hmm. It comes up periodically in the movie. Mm -hmm. And it's always this interesting balance of the young folks being very, I would say, probably newly aware of like, Oh, yeah, our parents have problems, too. Mm -hmm. Not even like, a oh, we want to keep this a secret from them or, Mm -hmm. oh, our parents won't understand. But it's very clear to me that, like, certainly with Kelly, when she talks about her and Jay's mom, but also some of the other characters, it's kind of like, yeah, my parents have their own stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, this is my stuff, and I'm not going to burden them with my stuff because they're dealing with their own stuff whatever that might be right and kelly and jay's mo- or dad is dead yeah too so that that kind of compounds that they're just like oh well we only have the one parent we don't want to bother her but that's also a very immature way yeah. of dealing with a problem and Definitely. i think that that kind of like knocks us back down to like yeah, these are adults. Yes, they like adults as in they can purchase tobacco products. Yeah. <laughs> Not as in like adult thinking brains. You yeah. Know? These aren't fully matured people, but the way that they handle it is it like knocks you back down into thinking like, okay, yeah. Also the way they treat Greg, like, oh yeah, he's the cool guy. Like, yeah. He has an old station wagon and wears like a jean jacket, a Sherpa jean jacket, you know, <laughs> like he's the cool dude. And Paul's like the dweeby one who works at the ice cream parlor. I have a lot to say about Paul later. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there is a interesting scene though to kind of piggyback off of that where right before hugh slash jeff uh chloroforms jay in the car so they've just had sex hugh slash jeff gets the chloroform out of the trunk and jay's kind of doing this monologue where she's like absentmindedly picking at this weed that's coming through the cracks of the parking lot and right before he ends up chloroforming her the last line she says is now that we're old enough where the hell do we go and that just kind of like reminded me of what you were saying about them being stuck they are stuck like yeah jay literally is saying i am stuck where do i go i can go anywhere but i have no idea what i want to do yeah i think we've all been there Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Paul. I want to hear what you have to say about Paul. I mean, to me, as much as I want to like Paul, I also just feel like he's such a classic, like, friend-zoned guy. Mm -hmm. He is 
there to help, certainly. And we know he's a longtime friend, like mm-hmm. probably grew up with Jay and Kelly, it seems. We find out much later in the film that he and Jay, at the very least, kissed in mm-hmm. high school, which not that unusual, you know. Right. But it's bothersome to me, and I caught a lot more this time because I was watching very carefully just how much he seems to feel almost owed Mm -hmm. Jay's sexuality Mm -hmm. and how when we see her getting close to Greg, for example, you see not caution, Mm -hmm. but straight up resentment on Paul's part. That just bothers me because that's such a typical, it's the typical nice guy, friend zone character, which you know, in 2014, that character still kind of made sense. Mm-hmm. It's it's just harder for me to see a character like that and still like the redeemable qualities he has and not just be like, you're owed nothing, sir. Yeah, yeah. No, I absolutely agree that the first time I was like, oh, no, he's trying to help. And now it's like, okay, he's trying to help in the way that is going to be the most beneficial for himself. Exactly. He doesn't want to help Jay for Jay's sake. He wants to help Jay so that he can kind of insert himself into her life yeah. in a way that probably organically wouldn't have happened. Which, if you take a look at the end scene of the movie with the two of them walking down the street holding hands, being followed by another entity, Jay does not look happy. Nope. <laughs> she certainly does not look like this is where she thought her life was going to go. It's just like hopelessly being stuck to this one dude and like trying to figure out a plan on how to divest yourself from this murderous entity. So yeah, I agree. And we never see it in this character, but I can't help but think where's the other side to Paul? Yeah. You know, like, okay... Paul did the sad, like, I'm kind of owed thing through the whole movie. When does he get angry? And yeah. when does he get violent? And, like, to me, that ending is almost like, this is me reading a lot into it, but it's like, what's more detrimental to Jay's fate? Or what's a worse, more violent end to be chased by the entity behind you? Or the person you're holding hands with if you decide to let go of their hand. No, yeah. I thousand percent agree with you because that is – it's such a toxic partnership to have to enter into. Yeah. Because you're both constantly having to run away from the entity that's pursuing you. But towards what? Right, right. Like towards something that you want? No. I don't think – Paul does not want the entity. Paul wants Jay. Right. But – that comes with something else. I'm actually going to wrap that into something I read on IMDb, obviously, because I read IMDb every time I I watch a movie anymore. There was a quote by a modern philosopher that was published not too long ago, I think 2019. This is a very annotated quote, but a lot of times people read into this movie as the, th- the entity being an STD, being right. a... Being a yeah. um, an analogy for an STD, which it absolutely could be. Yeah. Because, I mean, sexually transmitted, This the entity is sexually transmitted. This modern philosopher, Slavoj Zizek, basically, he said, like I said, this is annotated, to put it in a brutally simplified way, the lesson is that at an abstract forma level, one plus one is never simply two, since it always gives birth to an unwelcome supplement, so that we get one plus one plus A, for sexuality where the couple is never alone, but always accompanied by a spectral third element. 
And I mm-hmm. thought, I was like, that is perfect. Mm-hmm. And that came from um, an essay he published called Sex and the Failed Absolute. I thought that that was a perfect analogy for this movie is even without the entity, having sex with one person, like as much as we want to reduce it into saying one yeah. plus one equals two, it's never that. There's always the dangling participle, you know, after you have sex with somebody, whether that's consensual, whether it's for just simply gratification, whether it's for a means to an end, like mm-hmm. uh, Jay's sex with Greg is a means to an end. She ha- she shares sex with Hugh slash Jeff because she thinks that she is willingly having sex yeah. with him. He doesn't appear to coerce her. He like puts the moves on her and she says, let's go back to the car. She willingly, at least as far as we can tell. Right. It's a consensual she ha- encounter. Yeah. Given the information she has. She doesn't have all the information. Exactly. But she's consenting to what she thinks right. is happening. But Hugh slash Jeff is, this is a whole different transactional situation. He's whining and dining this chick for the strategic purpose of being able to pass this along to her. That's the plus A. Same with Greg. She's having sex with Greg because, one, it's familiar. Two, they want to see if it's going to pass on to Greg, if he's going to be able to see this thing, or if Jay is truly, like, she has mental problems at this point. Which is a valid point. It's still on the table at that point. Mm-hmm. But then when she has sex with Paul, Paul is wanting something from her rather than, like, what she wanted from Greg, which was to pass this thing along. as Kind of as an experiment, but also... I saw it as sort of a comfort thing. Although she does check out, she's like, this is familiar. Yeah. And she mentions to Paul, he was not scared. Greg wasn't scared. Mm -hmm. So, and then to Paul, Paul's like, okay, well, now I am inextricably linked to this girl. Oh, yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Great. Good for you. Yeah. But I was thinking about Hugh slash Jeff. I'm just going to call him Hugh. That's fine. So... Jay is going through, although self-preservation is always going to be the first instinct for somebody, at least as far as we know for Jay, self-preservation was an instinct for her. She went through so much to try and protect this guy. And I just thought for myself anyways, I was like, man, this guy is not worth this. I know self-preservation, but also like kind of want (laughs) to... Yeah, I kind of like to see this guy like get what is coming to him. Yeah, because he deserves it. He absolutely deserves it. So what I wonder is, does he? Because we lose him about halfway through the movie. Yeah. And I maintain that he doesn't fully know how it works. Okay. I, I maintain that he thinks he knows, but he doesn't truly know. And I almost wonder, and this this is the part that kind of bums me out that we never got the sequel that they talked about. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it caught up to him and we just never saw it. Yeah, I truly do wonder about the lore of this thing. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so, and I think you wanted to go back to this too. We are led to believe, based off of what Hugh says, that... The entity is passed along via sex. Mm -hmm. And I think the director has mentioned that it doesn't matter if it's same sex. It doesn't matter if you use a condom, whatever it is, it still gets passed along. And so, of course, like in my teenage brain, I'm thinking like, oh, well, does somebody have to like, is there like a climax involved? Like, does somebody have to actually, or like, is it any sort of like physical touch? Can it be, you know, are we talking like third base or fourth base, whatever bases? Mm -hmm. 
But is that actually how it gets passed? Right. I mean, it could be that, but it could be... It's so hard because it's not like the entity just pops up in front of you. Right. <laughs> when, yeah. Like once it's, it's like, passed hey along. <laughs> yeah. There's like a, a period of time that it takes for the thing to catch up with you. Yeah. And there would be no way to determine unless you like had it somehow captured mm-hmm. in front of you, which is not going to happen. Yeah. So like I really want to know. More. And I love that they keep it purposefully ambiguous because I love an ambiguous horror movie. I like Absolutely. Not, I like not knowing all the rules. But also I want to know the rules. <laughs> yeah, it's really both for me. I think it's so scary, the ambiguous nature of it. And yet, and so many movies have gone awry doing this. And yet I would love a sort of tracking down or an yeah. accounting for this entity or what one of the things they had said the sequel might have been when they were really talking seriously about doing a sequel mm-hmm. was there's a mention in the movie of going back down the line mm-hmm. to trace it back to the beginning. And, you know, this is like the Anne Rice fan in me that likes <laughs> the complicated histories. I'm like, sure. I want to see, you yeah. know, Jay trace it all the way back and find out where it started or get so far and start to really piece together the clues you know i love a good detective story yeah she's gonna go all veronica mars on it yeah exactly (laughs) so i I would have loved that in the form of a sequel Mm -hmm. but it would have been a very different sequel but i actually think it would have worked because this was so singularly good that they could have sort of taken the sequel in a different direction to make it a satisfying experience rather than trying to recreate the magic of the first one yeah Definitely. I do also think that like going down like backwards would be awesome. Like, how long has this thing existed? Where did it come from? What like thinking Anne Rice again, like, is this like a Lasher-esque situation (laughs) where like it's it's existed since like 14th century Scotland? Born of the wind. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, where did this come from? Who called this down? Has it always existed? Like, has it always been passed the same way? You know, I would really like to know that. Even if we don't find any more lore, like going back and tracing back through would be really cool. And seeing the ways that other people try to pass this off, like the scheming and stuff, because I I was thinking in my head, there's a point where Paul is driving and you see him like almost stop and consider stopping and like spending time with with a sex worker. Exactly. He like kind of slow rolls by and then reconsiders and doesn't do it which there's a point where jay also does that where she like goes on to this boat out off of the shore of where she is and it's left kind of ambiguous although i don't think that she did it where she could like you know have sex with the guys that are on this boat and theoretically pass it on to them and then maybe not worry about it for a while but even that like the way that we see hugh exist outside like even though he knows that jay is still alive and that you know the entity's following her he has like a half-life too like he's constantly wondering if you can't keep the thing under your thumb if you can't keep the next person that you've passed it to under your thumb then what kind of life are you able to live anyways because you're always going to have to wonder even if the entity didn't catch up to jay what if she got in a car accident what you know whatever it is that happened like you'd never be able to relax yeah well and he even says as kind of a revelation that he didn't seem to understand until he passed it to jay like oh i can still see it 
and I'm still aware of it. You know, I think that he believed that once he passed it on, he would be entirely free of it. Yeah. And that's not the case. Because he's you like, know. he can still see it. He can still see it. And we see that at the end with Jay and Paul. Yeah. They've kind of passed it on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's still with Paul and it's still obviously with Jay, too. And not just by virtue of her being with Paul. Mm-hmm. Like, it's still, it's still hanging out. Yeah. So I think that... I think that a lot of what Hugh said is based on what he knows, but Mm -hmm. he doesn't have the whole story. Right. I think I would be very interested to see, like I said, how everybody else tried to outsmart this thing. Yeah. And kind of the nuggets of knowledge that we get from what they found out or what they tested and it didn't work or like how this thing branches out. Because it's sort of like the ring. You Mm -hmm. know how like the lore of the ring is like, you watch the tape, and if you make a copy, then it'll skip over you or whatever, because that's what happens in the first ring is they make a copy and Aiden is safe or right. whatever. This strange little kid. But I want to know, like, what did you try that failed? Who has died in service of mm-hmm. this, like, whole chain, you know, to make it to the random girl in the bar that Hugh had a one-night stand with and then... Which is strange in and of itself because was the girl, is there ever a consensual experience with this thing? Because the girl in the bar who passed it along to him, she obviously had to show him in at least a similar way or in some sort of like violent way what happens when you have the entity following you so that he could pass along to Jay. So was she at the bar trolling for a one night stand on purpose mm-hmm. in order to pass this along? Like, it's crazy how it can, like, mess up all of your relationships. Because yeah. that's what happens to Jay. I mean, Greg seems interested in all the girls. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> like, he's interested in Jay. He's interested in Kelly. He's interested in Yara. He kind of, like, doesn't, he's not discriminating. And he has a girlfriend. So yeah. Again, to use a virgin suicide analogy, he's the Trip Fontaine of this movie. So he's, like, not picky, you know? Yeah. He's just kind of a sexual being. He's just out, like, whatever happens, happens, you know? He's living his life. <laughs> yeah. And Paul, on the other hand, is, like, very different. Mm-hmm. He's very different from that. And also Greg volunteers, you know? Paul's kind of, like, stuck on by circumstance. He hangs out with Kelly and Yara all the time, but... Greg, like, goes out of his way to be, like, because he's in his car smoking weed with his girlfriend, and then he, like, leaves whatever that situation is, which I think is a different girl than the one he was with in the cafeteria later on. Oh, yeah, I think it is. So he's a man about town. He is, yes. (laughs) As Matt Berry would say, (laughs) a man about town. But he goes out of his way to, like, actually help, and he chooses to do that. And it doesn't seem like he wants anything from Jay except for just to help yeah and be around a bunch of girls who cares yeah paul on the other hand though he's kind of like a hanger on to kelly and yara to be in proximity to orbit jay which is so weird yeah it's a very strange thing like he got friend zoned and then he's like okay well i'll just be friends with your sister then so i can be over at your house all the time Mm -hmm. like what and that dynamic is weird too because you have to wonder like how does that affect his friendship? You know, is his friendship with Kelly genuine? Is it only because he likes her sister? You know, yeah. like the, it gets very complicated very quickly. Exactly. 
I also love Yara in this movie. I'll oh, just bring I that love up Yara. Right. She's great. She, she's got great glasses. She's all the time reading like very dark, troubling prose. I want the little shell reader thing. Yeah. So that is an interesting addition to the movie that I don't necessarily think was, I don't think was necessary to mm-hmm. like the fabric of the movie, but a very interesting addition that was very clearly deliberate on the part of the director, but in a way that makes it more dreamy and less realistic. Yeah. But yes, I also want a clamshell reader thing <laughs> because it's awesome. Yeah. And, like, where else would I keep all of my... It's like a Polly Pocket, and you could just yeah. carry it around. It's a Polly Pocket, but for books. Yeah. And, yes, of course, we can read books on our phones, but... It's boring. Yeah. And it doesn't, like, flip shut. Yeah. It's, it's not better. a shell. So, the last thing I want to talk about is Greg's death scene. Yeah. Okay, so it's the only time we ever actually see the entity kill mm-hmm. anybody which imdb says the body count is two. Oh yeah i guess the girl at the beginning yeah, of the movie her name's anna yeah a- annie and maybe it's anna i don't know yeah a name but we we just see her dead we don't see her right. die right so greg we see die mm-hmm. and that scene is very troubling yeah so i also wonder does everybody who can see the entity see the same thing at the same time? Because hmm. um, Greg saw his mom and Jay saw his mom at the same time, which makes that whole death scene way more troubling. Yeah. What did you think of that? I mean, on a super basic level, we could go Freud here. Yeah. You know, Oedipal complex, that kind of a thing. I don't know if that's what they were going for, though. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's that to me being the most obvious answer is almost like then it's the wrong answer. You mm-hmm. know, like the most obvious answer is not the right answer here. Right. Certainly, if we're going with the whole sort of dream state thing, it's that kind of thing where in dreams, places and people often seem familiar and then they shift, mm-hmm. you know. Or they aren't who they seem to be, that kind of a thing. So I'm wondering if it's it's something like that. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't know. I also just wonder about the manner in which the entity kills people mm-hmm. and sort of what the end goal there is. If, yeah. if we're assuming that the entity is somewhat sentient Mm -hmm. you know is more than just a thing that follows and kills like it has some sort of goal like Mm -hmm. is it feeding Mm -hmm. like and does it accomplish that feeding through some kind of sex or sexual activity Mm -hmm. yeah i have a lot of questions about that but it's true that scene is troubling as hell yeah I had forgotten, I knew that Greg died, but I had forgotten, like, that scene, which it's troubling because the entity is representing Greg's mom at that point. Yeah. And it appears that they're having sex or that she's pantomiming sex, at least, on Greg, and that they're, like, coated in some, like, sticky substance. I don't know. It could be anything. I don't know. I'm not going to go any further into it. It's making my skin crawl. But... 
Greg is dead. When he dies, it's a very different death than the one that we see with the young lady at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Because her leg is, like, broken all the way backwards. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like... And also, it's like, why? Why would the entity do that? Yeah. Why would it break her leg backwards like that? Is this a torture situation where first they have to torture in order to kill? Because then towards the end, when the entity is going after Jay and the swimming pool... He's throwing the objects that they have at the edge of the swimming pool, which is another thing, like, that it has to indicate that it's sentient. That their idea, which is a very kind of ham-handed idea considering they've shot this thing in the head and it didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Their idea is plug in a bunch of stuff around the pool and we'll electrocute it. Yeah. Well, the thing knows what they're trying to do mm-hmm. and is aware, like, okay, well, I'm not going to go in the pool. And but, actively fights back. Right. Fights back. And he fights back at the beach so we know mm-hmm. that this thing can affect other people. It tries not to because, like, it'd be pretty hard to stay an invisible monster if you're, like, brushing against people and stuff if they're yeah. not in on it. Which it knows at that point that those folks are in on it. So I think that's why it's probably, like, I don't care. It still wants to go towards its, you mm-hmm. know, end goal. Which is why the dad entity at the end is has its hand out against, you know, to try and block mm-hmm. Paul's shot. But he's still actively trying to go towards Jay. So, yeah, just, like, what does it want? Yeah. Because eventually this thing, like, let's say it's extremely successful and it just eats all the way down. It kills everybody. Well, yeah. then what? Exactly. Does it just live on forever? Like, okay, well, I did it. Now I'm content. Yeah. it's a good question. Or does it know that it will never be successful so it just eats its own tail? Maybe. So weird. So Maybe. weird, man. I love a movie that leaves me with more questions than answers. Yeah, definitely. That's where good fan fiction is born. <laughs> <laughs> so next time, we're going to stick with some fun stuff uh, going all the way back to the 80s for this one. Love a good 80s creature feature. That's right. <laughs> going to do everybody's favorite, Chud. Yay. Yay, that'll be next time. And we are now in Virgo season. Yeah, as of today. Dang. As of today. (sighs) It's the end of August. Yeah. So stuff (laughs) is imminent, I think. Yes. Yes. We're doing we're doing things. We're doing things. This season. This season. But the season has just started, so. Yeah, so we have some time. <laughs> we have to prepare. So bear with us. If you want to keep tabs on all of the latest things, just check out the social medias. And, of course, subscribe so you don't miss anything because there's stuff coming. Yeah. Lots of stuff. Definitely. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.